Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. We're in the midst of a series that we started last week called Good, Better, Jesus. And we're talking about the book of Hebrews for the next several weeks, actually through the month of August, all the way through the month of August. We're going to be talking about the book of Hebrews. We're going to be talking about the big issues. I mentioned last week, we're going to kind of do a flyover of Hebrews. There's no way that we can take every single verse and delve deeply into it, but we are going to take an overview look of it. Um, in each week, we're going to take an important section of, of this passage, of this scripture, of this book, and explain it, talk about it, and ask how does it apply to us. Let me just tell you that uh, I mentioned last week that we weren't going to be able to talk about some of the deeper things in chapter 1, especially at the end of chapter 1, and I did a Facebook Live thing on Thursday and didn't know what to expect, but just to tell you, as of today, about 375 people have watched that thing. That's a lot of people. Now, nobody gave me a lot of good questions, so I had to come up with some of my own of my own questions. So if you've got questions about it, even if you don't get to see it, it'll be good for other people. We did have a couple last week, and we talked about those and engaged with those and, and had some good response back on that. And so we'll be doing that again this week. But we're going to be looking today at Hebrews chapter 2. And if you remember last week, we talked about that the book of Hebrews was written to a group of Christians who were considering going back, that they had accepted Christ, that they had followed him, but they were beginning to wonder if it was worth it. We think these Hebrews were probably in Rome. They could have been in other places, but Rome is the most likely place. And that he's saying to them, don't give up, don't quit. Jesus is better. No matter what the difficulty you're facing in life is, no matter what the problem you have in life, no matter what the obstacle that is there in life, no matter the persecution that might come against you, no matter the family difficulty might result, don't give up. Jesus is better. And in fact, literally, that could be our theme of every sermon that I'm going to do for the next two months. Don't give up. Jesus is better. Now, to be honest with you, in some ways, that could be the theme of almost every sermon I ever do, right? Don't give up. Life is hard. Difficulties come. Don't give up. Why? Because Jesus is better. So today, we're going to look specifically at a part of that. Now, our goal each week, and my desire each week is for us to lift high out of the book of Hebrews, not something that's not there, but out of the book of Hebrews, to lift high a picture of who Jesus is. And in lifting high the picture of who Jesus is, that every week he grows bigger and bigger in our minds. I shared a quote with you last week from one of my favorite series of books, the Chronicles of Narnia. And in the midst of that, Lucy, who's the youngest girl, the youngest child in the book, sees Aslan, the Christ figure, a year later and says, Aslan, you're bigger. And he says, that's because you were older, little one, answered he. Not because you are, she says. He says, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. My goal is every week we see a bigger picture of who Jesus is. We're going to start at the end of last week's sermon to get into this week's sermon because I believe that it's important for us to understand this concept of not going away, not drifting away. So the first point this morning that we're going to look at in Hebrews chapter 2 starting in verse 1 is don't drift. Don't 
drift. Look at what it says in chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. For if the message spoken through angels was legally binding and every transgression and disobedience received as just punishment, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This is what he says to him. So he's in the first chapter, what we talked about last week, that Jesus is the one that created it all, that Jesus is the one that sustains it all, that Jesus is the one that will complete it all, that he is the radiance of God's glory. He's a picture of who God is. He then gives a lengthy discussion of the fact that he is greater than angels. These uh, Hebrews that he's writing to, the author is writing to, they had a very high view of angels. They viewed angels, in fact, as the ones who would rule over the earth in the age to come. And he says to them, listen, don't drift away if the message, there arisen this kind of discussion in the midst of their belief system that angels were the one that actually delivered the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, there's no evidence of that in Exodus, but in Deuteronomy, he's just talking about God coming with a myriad of hosts. And so perhaps they were there as he was getting the, the Ten Commandments delivered. He says, listen. If a message angels delivered carried consequences for not following and obeying, how much greater will the consequences be for those who hear the message of Christ and do not obey? And his point is, don't drift. Now when I want to say the word drift. What do you think of? What comes to mind when you hear drift? Floating away. If you grew up in the snow belt, maybe it's snow drifts. If you're into car racing, maybe it's drift racing. Anybody here any, any drift racing before? Oh, we got some hands. We got a couple of hands. Look at that, right? Some. What, what's that? You wrecked on the drifted wreck? Oh, drag racing. All right. Not drag, drift racing, right? I'm not asking what y'all were doing in your cars back on the strip back in the day, all right? I'm going to ask about drag racing, all right? You're cruising around the big boy over there. Maybe you think about Dobie Gray, right? Give me a beat boy and free my soul. I want to get lost in that rock and roll and drift away, right? I think about a movie, the movie Castaway. Anybody remember Castaway? Tom Hanks, right? And Tom Hanks is on the island and he builds that raft and he has to take along with him his lone friend in the world at the time. Wilson. Right? You remember what Wilson is, right? Wilson is a volleyball, right? It's a Wilson volleyball. It's got a handprint on it. He takes it with him and you remember he gets on the raft and a big wave hits and what happens to Wilson? He's off. And Hanks jumps out to go get him and Wilson with every wave Gets farther and farther. He just drifts away. The idea literally in this text is one that is just gently carried along bit by bit over time. And he says, in light of all we know about Jesus, the first part of chapter 2 is the sandwich. It's the meat in the sandwich. Because he's going to give them a lot about Jesus in the first, in chapter 1. We're going to look in just a minute at a lot about Jesus in chapter 2. And in the midst of that, he says that everything we know about Jesus, don't drift. Now he asks the question, what does it look like to drift? What, what are the symptoms? How do I know if that's what I have, right? 
If I plugged in, how do I know if I'm spiritually drifting away on a spiritual web MD, what would the symptoms be? Well, he tells us, first of all, it's unapplied truth. We must pay attention all the more to what we have heard. It's legally binding. It's every transgression and disobedience have piled upon us. He's saying, do not listen and not obey. When we hear the word of God, when we fail to put it into action, we are in danger of drifting. And I mean immediately. Now, I'm under no kind of um, naive understanding that every week when you leave this place, you are convicted by the Holy Spirit in a mighty way and major life changes happen in your life. But my goal is that over time, as the Word of God is preached again and again and again, and in your own personal time as you're reading the Word of God over and over again, that He will begin to speak into your heart. And when that happens, you obey. James is the one that says, right, don't be just hearers of the Word, but do what be what? Doers of the Word. He said, because to be a hearer, not a doer, is to like look in a mirror and decide it looks great and not do anything to change what you got. When we all know it don't look that great. I looked in the mirror this morning. I thought I was ready to go. And I had some hair that decided it needed to go all different directions in the back of my head. Now, I could have looked at it and said, you know what? It, that's good enough. And there are some days when it's good enough, right? Where of God says that. When we look into it, it's like a mirror that reflects the actuality of who we are. And to not change anything is to be like a man who walks away and says, that's good. Jesus is the one that said that a man who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like one who built his house on the rock. And he who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like the one who built his house on the sand. And we know how that story ends, right? You begin to drift when you don't apply the truth that God has for you secondly we begin to drift when we disconnect ourselves from god's people in worship and i don't mean just coming and sitting in worship i mean investing our lives in working together worshiping together sharing together loving together that we need each other one of the things that he'll tell them in the book of hebrews a little bit later is that famous verse do not neglect the coming together don't get don't give up on your meeting together don't quit getting together the truth is, that's why it's so important for you to be involved in a small group, in a Sunday school class here at our church. Because as a whole, we can't all bunch together and get all that we need from each other in a large environment like this. But that when we are together and encouraging one another in God's word, when we're studying God's word, we're talking about God's word, we're praying for one another, we're helping one another through difficulties in life. That's when we stay connected to Christ as well. For the last uh, four or five years, um, about four or five years ago, uh, for Father's Day, I got a nice gas grill. I like to grill. Some of you know my dad is a master griller. I grew up grilling with him, and so I like to grill. And for some reason, last uh, about uh, about three weeks ago, I decided I love the gas grill. It's nice. You go out there, you turn the knob, you light it, you're ready to go. But there's something about cooking over charcoal. Just something about it, right? And I hadn't done it about three or four years at our house. 
And so I went out and bought me a charcoal grill. It's been so long since I bought a charcoal grill. The one I used all growing up, that company's gone bankrupt and I couldn't even find it anywhere. I had to buy a copycat, all right? Here's what's interesting about charcoal, right? It doesn't look like it lights. Like it lights and you see the fire and then the fire dies down. You go, is it really doing much of anything? And then you put your hand over it and what do you realize? It's hot. Now the thing about cooking on a charcoal grill, it's always ready to grill the best when you're done. I don't know if you've ever cooked on one before. Like you let it sit for 45 minutes, you get it good, and then you cook on it. And when you get cooked on it, you go, but man, that fire is good right now. We got any steaks or chicken in the fridge we can put on here? Now, then you got the problem. It's 8 o'clock at night, and you got a good fire going in your grill outside, and everybody in the house wants to go to bed. So we got a fire pit over that someone let us have in our house. And so, you know what I did to cool those charcoal off? I spread them out, right? Because as long as they're bunched together, what are they going to do? They're going to keep warm. But you start spreading them out, they lose that heat real quickly, right? You know the illustration. As believers, the more spread out we are, the less connected we are, the less on fire for the Lord we're going to be. We need each other. We begin to drift and we don't care about the truth that God has given us and we forget to apply it. We begin to drift when we are disconnected from God's people in worship and in life together. And then also we are, we begin to drift and we become complacent about sin. Now he says this right here in, in chapter 2, the first part. The, the point behind it is, disregarding Christ is sin. And if you disregard and leave what he has taught, then you have become complacent about sin in your life. And he compares the people here in Hebrews to those in the Old Testament who heard the message from Sinai, who received the covenant from God and chose to ignore it. And they became callous to sin. And as a result, God punished and distanced himself from them. We become complacent about our sin. We don't want to be in the presence of God because we know there's sin there. Or we don't even care anymore whether sin's in our lives or how close God is to us. We were riding in the car yesterday and um, there's a modern praise and worship song called Holy Spirit, You're Welcome Here. Come fill this place. And there's a, a bridge part in the midst of that that says, let us become more aware of your presence. Let us experience the glory of your goodness. Well, I heard Maddie in the back singing. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but Maddie's goal in life is to be the number one singer in the world. She has small goals, small. In fact, if you go to her school and on her first grade, what are you going to be when you grow up? It doesn't say singer. It doesn't say performer. It says number one singer in the world. All right. So it's small goals. And so she likes to sing and she sings. We listen to Christian radio a lot in our car and she sings those songs out. But she doesn't always get the words exactly right. And instead of singing, let us become more aware of your presence. She was singing, let us become far away from your presence. That changes the meaning a little bit, right? And let us experience the glory of your goodness. And my first thought was, let me correct her, and I did, but also thought, how many people, if you were truly honest with yourselves, you would say, 
Lord, if I could just have the glory of your goodness without the judgment that comes from your nearness, Lord, let me be far away from your presence if I can get your goodness. Because what happens in Scripture when people come into the contact with the glory of God? They get on their face. They get down as low as they can get. And when we get to a place where we're complacent about our sin, we no longer concerned about our sin, we no longer think about our sin, then we've drifted. And the author of Hebrews says, don't drift. And then he gives another beautiful picture of Jesus. The writer basically has one message that he keeps coming back to over and over in this entire book. And it's look to Jesus. He says it in different ways. He says we see Jesus. He says looking unto Jesus. He says fix your eyes on Jesus. And what he's going to do in chapter 2 is he's going to give us four different pictures of Jesus. Four pictures that if you see them correctly will make all the difference in your faith and in your life. They'll be the mirror that you cannot walk away from unchanged. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read the rest of chapter 2, verses um, 3, uh, the second part of 3, all the way through verse 18. I'm going to stop along the way and make some comments, and then at the end I'm going to give you those four pictures, because I think they are quite amazing. Starting at the second part of verse 3, it says, This salvation had its beginning when it was spoken of by the Lord, and it was confirmed to us by those who heard Him. At the same time, God also testified by signs and wonders, various miracles and distributions of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to his will. He said, listen, we know this message is true. We've seen it. We've heard it. We've, we've, we've talked to people that have heard about it. And the signs and wonders and the miracles and the gifts all show it's true. And then he gives us four pictures of Jesus. For it was not to angels. He is not subjected to angels, the world to come that we are talking about. But somewhere, somewhere, someone somewhere has testified. And I love that, right? I don't know who the writer of Hebrews is, but it's almost like he had a senior moment there for a minute. Somewhere, someone wrote. Now, I know where it is because he quotes Psalm 8 here. What is man that you remember him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, or in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. He left nothing that is not in his control. That's a pretty amazing statement. Because here he's talking not about the Son of Man, he's talking about man. God made the world for humans. All of creation was supposed to be under our control. It was made for us. For a little while we were made lower than the angels, but a little while means that it was temporary. For instance, let's say a king has a son, and while the son is growing up, he has tutors. Who's more highly thought of, the tutor or the son of the king? Who's in a higher position? Well, for a while, the tutors are telling the son... But eventually, the son takes control of the whole country. I want you to think about this for a minute, okay? Because when we see angels in Scripture, what do people do? When people encounter angels in Scripture, what do they do? They freak out, right? It's a very technical term. right? They become afraid. Why? How do we know that they're afraid? What are the first words of almost every encounter an angel has with a human being? 
Fear not. Now, I want to just tell you something. That means that if you think angels look like little naked babies on clouds, that's not what they look like. Because ain't nobody scared of a naked baby on a cloud, right? They're warriors. They're messengers of God. They're part of the host of the angel armies. Whenever an angel shows up in Scripture, they're glorious and beautiful and terrifying. And the first words out of their mouths are, don't be scared. They show up and they're like, wait, 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 you're not going to die. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Now here's what I want you to think about. Scripture says that we are in a higher position and privilege and glory than angels. That's our destiny. Our destiny is to be in a higher privilege and position and glory than angels. Now, I want you to look at the person on your left or right or front or back and think that person, if they know Jesus, is to be destined to be higher, more beautiful, to have more glory and more power than Gabriel or Michael. Now, and this is not a time, husbands, to say, I always knew that, honey. (laughs) Right? It's also not the time to go, ain't no way. All right? All right? And that Christ is the one that is bringing it all under subject. Now, it says this little disclaimer there. It says, as it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him. That could be one of the understatements of the year. Is creation currently visually able to be seen under subjection to Christ? I'm not saying does he have the authority, does he have the power, does he have the ability. I'm saying is creation doing right now are human beings in mass doing what god has called us to do no in the past century 100 million people died of unnatural causes apart from war or disease or natural disaster that means a hundred million people died, not counting war, not counting disease, of crime, genocide, or starvation. We've seen how fragile even the strongest economies can be. And no solution we come up with seems to be the right fit. People on the more conservative side of the scale say that government is the problem. Let corporations have freedom, give them Less restriction so that they can go out there and spur the economy on. But then we have the problem that people run corporations. Sometimes they abuse their freedom hurt the economy. And so then people on the less conservative, moderate, more liberal side of the scale say no business is the problem. We need to regulate so they create huge corrupt bureaucracies which end up hurting more businesses and people than being helpful. And I'm not saying that all governmental systems are the same, just that none of them have the solution. Other people say education is the answer, and the truth is, yes, that can fix a lot of problems, but it also produces a lot of pride and snobbery and sophisticated sins and ways to get away with it. And so we look around, and at the moment we don't see everything in subjection to man. And honestly, that's one of the biggest problems that people have with Christianity. They say, listen, if God's supposed to be in control, if God is good, then why in the world are all this stuff happening? Why are tsunamis happening? Why is there evil? Why is there corruption? Why is there heartache? Why is there abuse? Hebrews tells us it's because not yet is everything under our feet. And then it switches 
to understand Jesus' role. Verse 9. But we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time. So that by God's grace, he might taste death for everyone. Did you get that? For by God's grace, he might taste death for everyone. Crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Verse 10, for in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate for God. For whom and through whom all things exist should make the source of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. We'll come back to that, but that's a remarkable statement. A remarkable statement. Saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. Again, verse 13, I will trust in him. And again, here I am with the children of God gave me. Verse 14. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these. So that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death. That is the devil and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way. So that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Four remarkable pictures of Jesus in this text. And the first one comes in verse 9 when it says that we have an engaged king. A king who got involved. We don't have a king that sat on the outside. He didn't look down and say, man, that's a big problem. Is there something I can do from a distance? He came and he got involved at the risk of his life. Now, many of you may have heard the story of 1964 murdered of, of Kitty Genovese in Manhattan. A mugger came up to her and stabbed her and she screamed. He stabbed me. He stabbed me. Lights came on in the apartment complex all around her. The mugger backed away, but nobody came to help her. Nobody wanted to put themselves in harm's way. It was documented that 37 people saw this, but nobody got involved. When the assailant saw that no one was coming to help her, he came back to where she had dragged herself into an alley, killed her, took $49 from her purse. Nobody wanted to get involved. Nobody wanted to put themselves at risk. Praise be to God, we don't have a Savior who stayed at a distance. Scripture says in verse 9 that he made himself lower than the angels for a short time. So by the God's grace he might taste death for everyone. He tasted death for us. It's like we were just innocently being mugged. It's not like that. We deserved the punishment that was coming our way. And Jesus stepped in on our behalf and saved us. Jesus is an engaged king. We talk a lot in this country about our founding fathers. And our founding fathers were great men with a great vision. 
But there were many of our founding fathers that were not what we would call evangelical, Bible-believing Christians. There were a lot of people that had uh, an understanding of who God was. They talked about God. Some of our founding fathers blatantly discussed the fact that they didn't believe Jesus was God. But one of the most prevalent religions of the founding fathers' day was something called deism. Deism has been called the watchmaker's theology. And the idea is that God created everything on this planet and then he just let it go. Just like a watchmaker creates a watch and then sells it. That he watches from a distance, as Bette Midler would a couple hundred years later say. But that's not the biblical picture of God at all. We have a God who created the world. Multiple times became involved in it. On a daily basis is involved in the sustaining of it. And when the time was right, sent his son to die for our sins. He engaged in the most personal way possible. In our country, we don't have a good understanding of what it means to have royalty. If you go to England, especially a hundred years ago, and you watch what it's like to have royalty, people had a reverence and a distance from them. And stories would be written in remarkable ways about a king or a queen who came in any way to help out a peasant or one who was lowly. And yet the God of the universe became one of us. Tells us here in Hebrews chapter 2 that Jesus is an engaged king. Secondly, it tells us that he is a victorious champion. Verse 10, it talks about him being the source of our salvation. The founder of our salvation. But a better word translation of that, a better understanding of that is that he is the champion or deliverer or even the captain of our salvation. Down in verse 14, he picks it up and says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself took part in that. That through his death, he might destroy the one who had power over death. That is the devil and deliver all those through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In the old days, fights were often subjected or settled by selecting a representative to fight for each side on behalf of the army. Like Hector and Achilles. Or the most biblical example of that is what? David and Goliath. A giant that terrors everyone. David, a little unassuming shepherd boy, takes a very unlikely weapon, goes out and slays the giant while everyone else stands on the sideline and watches. David was their champion. It was a picture of Jesus who won the battle against the real giant Goliath while we all stood on the sidelines and didn't lift a finger to help him. And in so doing, he delivered us from the one thing we are most terrified of, death. An honest Sober moments, people admit that death terrifies them the most. Tolstoy wrote this, confession. Something strange began to happen to me at age 50. I had a wife who loved me and whom I loved. I had a large estate which, without much effort on my part, increased. My name was respected, I enjoyed physical strength, and yet I could not live because of the knowledge of my coming death. 
The question, which literally brought me to the verge of suicide, sought an answer without which one cannot live. Is there any meaning in life that my inevitable death does not destroy? Today or tomorrow, death will come to those I love and then to me. Soon, not only will I not exist, but eventually no one will exist who will remember anything I've written or done. Why thing going on with this effort? What is it all for? What does it all lead to? What difference does it make whether or not I do this thing or that thing or nothing at all? So I could give no rational meaning to any single action or even to my whole life. But what was so surprising was how we can fail to see this. For a time it is possible to live intoxicated with life. But as soon as one is sober, it is impossible not to see that life in the face of death is a fraud. And a stupid fraud at that. How often I have been told, oh you cannot understand the meaning of life. So don't think about it, just live. But I can no longer do that. Sigmund Freud, who gave occasional nuggets of wisdom sandwiched between mountains of nonsense. Said that the fear of death dominates our consciousness. On the one hand, he said, we have a death wish, feelings of guilt, shame, not living up to what we ought to be. But on the other, there's an enormous fear of death. And it keeps us in captivity. It's terrifying because you feel like it's the end. There's this pressure to experience everything you can right now. And you miss out on something, you're bitter about it. If you're single or you don't find happiness and love, you get desperate because this is your only shot. If your kids aren't doing what they're supposed to do, you get desperate because this is your shot. Or you start to panic when you see yourself aging because you're in the process of dying. So you Botox your face and wear clothes completely inappropriate for your age and dye your hair and buy a red convertible. Right? Or you get older and you start obsessing about building a legacy. I gotta leave something here on this earth. I gotta leave something behind. I gotta leave something for my kids. I gotta leave something for them. Or you start to fear death because you know enough to know there's something coming after that. And here's the greatest thing about Jesus He's victorious over our greatest fear and challenge. It wasn't like it was easy for Him. Remember Gethsemane? Horror. Overcome with sorrow to the point of death. Sweat drops of blood. But he conquered death. By death. Now death has been defeated. And he's taking the fear out of it. One of the things they can never prepare you for in seminary as a pastor. Is the amount of death that you will deal with. You just can't prepare someone for that. I went to Ripley. I remember I was 25 years old. First church I ever served in, I walked in. We had a death on the second day I was a pastor. Second day. And the family came to me with deep theological questions. There were two unbelieving sons that had this believing, great mother who had been in our church in Ripley for years. I never met her. Two years later, I'm eating food at a... Chinese restaurant in Ripley. There are only three restaurants in Ripley. You had Mexican, McDonald's, or Chinese. I was at the Chinese. Right? You alternated. I got a phone call from my secretary that says that I need to go to the hospital. A young girl, not a believer, had been coming to our church for about the past three weeks. Two-year-old son. I watched him die. With her standing there, me in the room. Nothing you can do to prepare for that. At least there's nothing you can do to prepare for what the families are going to be feeling. But when it comes to your own death, you can prepare for it. 
It's about trusting in Jesus and what he does for you. So now when I stand by the grave of a newborn baby and I look at the grieving family, yes, there's grief, but there's hope. In Christ, they can see that baby again. Susan and I um, experienced a couple of miscarriages. I can't imagine the joy that's going to happen when I walk into heaven and my child's going to be waiting on me. Our enemy's greatest weapon, the weapon with all other weapons, was death. And our champion defeated it. Paul says, death, where is thy victory? Death, where is your sting? Disappointment, failure, rejection. Where's your devastation, loneliness? Where's your bitterness? Christ has removed death from death. He's the only religious leader in the history of the world that has claimed to do that. He's the only one that's gone into the grave and come back. He is a victorious champion. Third, he's an unashamed brother. I'm trying to think of how to ask this question sensitively, and I'm please gonna please don't point. But you ever have somebody in your family that that weird uncle or somebody, somebody you're not quite proud of. You don't have to nod. You can just, you know, grin, and I'll know, all right? You ever had, how many of you here were the oldest or had younger siblings? How many of you are here the oldest or you had younger siblings? Any of you ever embarrassed by your younger siblings when you were doing something when you were younger and they wanted to join in? Can I tell you something? Every one of us is Jesus' weird brother. We are the one... That he ought to be ashamed of. But he's not. He looks at us and says, that's my brother. I love looking through Jesus' genealogy. I know we do that sometimes at Christmas. But I love that it was common in those days for kings to publish their genealogies. And one of the things they would do is they would scrub anybody they were ashamed of. You look at it and go, man, this guy comes from a great line. There wasn't any black sheep in that family. If there was somebody in your ancestry, you just left them out. Then you read Jesus' genealogy. There's a prostitute in there. An unwed mother. A girl who was raped by her uncle. David's illegitimate son born out of adultery. People who failed and embarrassed themselves. Those were the people Jesus included in his genealogy. He was unashamed. They were his brothers and sisters. In fact, one of my favorite resurrection scenes, Jesus is to say to Mary in the garden, go tell my brothers that I have been raised. Of all the things to call them at that moment, they all left him. They all forsake him, every single one of them. I would have been like, go tell those slack, cowardly dolts that I was resurrected like I told them I would a thousand times. I told him so, right? That would have been the gospel according to Lyle, but thank goodness it's not the gospel according to Jesus. Because he says, go tell my brothers of all the things in my life that I can claim from Christ. One of the most blessed is that he is unashamed to be my brother. I don't think we have a clue what that means. And then lastly, and we're going to be done. He's a faithful priest. It tells us this in verse 17 and 18. He became a merciful and high priest to make propitiation for the sins of the people. To make atonement for the sins of the people. 
Because he's been tempted, he's able to help those who are tempted. His temptation and suffering enabled him to help us in two or three ways. First of all, psychologically, it helps us to know that when we pray, we pray to a God who has felt everything we prayed. He knows what the lure of temptation is like. He knows what it's like to be tired and hungry. He knows what it's like to weep, not even really understanding the will of the Father in a certain situation. He knows what it's like to experience betrayal and rejection by a dysfunctional family or to be stabbed in the back by friends, close friends, ministry friends. He knew what it was like to see single long after the rest of his friends got married. The Gospels record him going to all kinds of weddings. He knew disappointment in ministry. He knew the grief of having a child reject him and walk out on him. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He understands. And sometimes just knowing that he knows helps us. And because he's saved us, he can help us without condemnation. He doesn't look down upon us. And because of that, we know that our sin is guaranteed. Christ is seated at the right hand of God, shows us the ultimate victory is ours. And that our guilt has been removed as far as the east is from the west. And your victory over the power of sin in your life is secure as Christ's position at the right hand of God. We have an engaged king, a victorious champion, an unashamed brother, and a faithful priest. And there's one little thing kind of tucked in the middle of this chapter That ought to blow us all away. And it's verse 16. It says. For it surely is not angels that he helps. But he helps the offspring of Abraham. First Peter says that the angels long to look into the gospel. Angels that stand all day long servicing God perfectly. Long to feel the love that you feel in the gospel. As human beings, sometimes we have almost an inordinate fascination with angels. But here's the crazy thing. If angels had television shows, they'd be inordinately curious about us. They might have a show called Touched by a Human. That's a Michael Landon reference if you didn't get it there, right? The writer repeats over and over through this book, whatever is going on, whatever is happening, you have an important place in the life of Christ and the life of God. Look to Jesus. If you lack courage, look to Jesus seated on the throne. Are you overwhelmed with despair? Look at the resurrected Jesus. How can you be in despair when the champion, king, brother, and friend reign supreme? Are you lonely? Your brother, your friend will never leave you or forsake you. Are you discouraged at your lack of victory over sin? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see Christ there who made an end of all my sin. Can you not give up control? Look at Jesus. Can't you trust him if there's one person you can trust? It would be him. You're struggling in your faith, striving to understand. Look to the glory of Jesus. I can't explain everything. I don't know it all. But I know that he who conquered our greatest enemy, reveals his plan for good for us, is seated on the throne of the universe and is in charge. Whatever you lack, whatever you need. It's not a new command. It's not a new teaching. It's not a new willpower. It's not a new motivation. It is a savior in whom we can trust and find refuge. And that's the difference between religion and the gospel. Religion takes a look at your problem and tells you to do better, try harder. The gospel tells you to look at Jesus and say, he is better. Trust him. The world out there is telling us to get to know ourselves. Find the strength within. 
But the scripture says, no, 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 no. Get to know Jesus. I saw a tagline the other day from a church that said, discover the champion within you. The problem with that, the champion with me and me is going to fail me at every moment. I'd rather find the champion in scripture. So when we get to the end of this passage, what do we do? Two things. First of all, we embrace Jesus. He's the one, the only, the perfect, the priest, the victor, the friend, the brother, the king. We love what he is and who he is. We give our lives to him. It is not foolish to give up what we cannot keep to gain Jesus. Jim Elliot's the one that says, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's from a guy that would be killed on the mission field shortly thereafter. We embrace Jesus. And then secondly, don't drift. Be intentional about following him. One of my favorite hymns growing up was uh, Come Thou Founts. Of every blessing. Now I will tell you that it wasn't for the deep theological significance of it. It was because on those special occasions in the Baptist church. When we sang all three verses of that hymn. I don't know if y'all know this. But we don't always sing all the verses of a hymn. Right? In the second verse there was a particularly funny word to a ten year old. That's Ebenezer. Because I thought for the longest time he was talking about Ebenezer Scrooge. I didn't realize that Charles Dickens wasn't in the Bible. All right? But as I've gotten older, my favorite verse has become verse 3. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy love, Lord, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That song was written by a Baptist pastor named Robert Robinson at age 22. I don't know what you were doing at 22. I wasn't writing hymns like that, all right? He was converted by a a revival of George Whitefield in 1757. He wrote the hymn. At 26, he started pastoring Stone Yard Baptist Church in Cambridge. The church grew to over a thousand people. But something happened in the years that followed. He came under the influence of a Unitarian pastor. I don't know if you know what Unitarians believe, but they don't believe that Jesus is God's son. They challenged his belief, particularly in the Bible. And almost as a self-fulfilling prophecy, Robert Robinson found himself wandering away from the Lord. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. He wrote in letters that he embraced Unitarian doctrine and no longer believed in Jesus as God. He stopped reading the Bible. He stopped preaching the Bible. And his church steadily declined. Warren Wisby tells the story that one day Robert was traveling by stagecoach from Cambridge to London. A young lady was reading a book next to him. And she just stopped in the middle of her reading and said, Sir, have you ever heard this wonderful hymn? And it was his. He broke down and confessed he had written the words of a hymn as a young man. But now he felt he had wandered far from God. And the young lady looked at him and said, But sir, just as you wrote, God's streams of mercy are never 
ceasing. And through her encouragement, Robert was restored to the Lord, rediscovered the, the joy of his salvation. He started believing and preaching the Bible and faithfully served the Lord until he died. Don't drift. And if you have, it's not too late to come back. Trust in his word. Get around God's people. And allow him to cleanse you. Let's pray together.